Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The same people who gave Biden low marks and approval gave extremely high marks to the hard infrastructure bill. Democrats didn't show up. They were not motivated. They're not excited. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The national trends of the Democrat Party definitely woke a lot of people up that they needed to get out and vote. The Biden administration seems to hate the oil and gas industry. It's one of the reasons gas prices are so high. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. All right, welcome to Sound On. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, subbing in today as guest host along with Emily Wilkins, my colleague at Bloomberg Government. We're uh, here in place of Joe Matthew, and we're looking for big news today from the Congressional Budget Office. No, not just because I'm a nerd and I like reading CBO (laughs) reports, but because this is what the moderate Democrats are waiting for before they're okay with a vote on the House floor, as soon as tonight maybe, uh, on the major Democratic tax and spending bill. I'm looking at the Ways and Means report. We're waiting for the whole overall score. Emily, What's on your radar? What should we we be looking for tonight or tomorrow or whenever we actually get a vote? Jack, this is what we've all been waiting for for like two weeks at this point. I mean, two weeks ago, the House was like, we're going to pass this bill. And then moderates were like, hold up. We want to see what the spending and revenues are going to be. And so I I really think at this point, it's not so much what the report says. It's more of are bigger moderates in the House ready to go ahead and take that vote? All right. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from Congressman David Price, Democrat from North Carolina who's actually a key lawmaker in terms of infrastructure funding. There was actually a round of applause on the House floor earlier today for House Majority Steny Hoyer when he uh, told lawmakers they may actually be able to hold this key vote in the House uh, as soon as tonight and then leave for Thanksgiving break and get out of here. That always gets a a round of applause (laughs) when you might be able to uh, leave before Friday. Let's hear what the, the majority leader had to say when he laid out the schedule for what's coming up in the House. It is my hope that we will complete uh, this legislation uh, today so that this would be the last legislative day (laughs) prior to uh, the Thanksgiving uh, work period. Um, We will, however, I want to make sure everybody understands, uh, complete Build Back Better before we go home. I'm hopeful and believe that I think most members are hopeful that we can do that tonight, whether you're for it or against it. All right. So on the line, we have Congressman David Price, Democrat from North Carolina. He's on the Appropriations Committee. That's such an important committee that because he heads a subcommittee, they call him a cardinal because he's just below the pope in terms of government funding. (laughs) Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Key question, it seems, is if you are going to be able to vote tonight and then get out of town, is, is that looking likely? Well, I was one of those applauding, so I certainly <laughs> hope so. And uh, it is looking increasingly likely. We've been told that the uh, 
Rules Committee is going to meet uh, very shortly here, which um, the significance of that is that they will um, they will pass uh, a rule which governs the floor debate on this um, on this measure as we as we have to have, and 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 that rule will probably incorporate whatever um, uh, changes in the bill that the Senate parliamentarian has said are necessary in order for it to. Um, survive this very uh, arcane uh, reconciliation process. All that by way of saying that I think the uh, the coast is clear. I, I would never say that uh, definitively, but uh, it, it's looking that way. Okay, so we're prepping for the Senate, hoping to see a, a vote tonight. Uh, I'm looking through these CBO reports, the Ways and Means measure, which seems to be sort of the critical measure before we get the top line numbers on the whole bill, doesn't seem to have any surprises that I can find on IRS enforcement or drug pricing. Is there anything to your knowledge that could actually throw a wrench into this process from the CBO report? Or are we really just waiting for them to put that out there to please the moderates and then you're you're good to go? I believe it's good to go. I um I, I don't know, of course, but uh, the, uh, the there were there were some disputes about the uh, scoring of the uh, improved enforcement uh, provisions. Those are important uh, aspects of, of the bill, uh, an important way of paying for the bill, and and widely accepted politically. You know that people need to be uh, paying their fair share of taxes, and they need to be paying what they owe. So uh, uh, Republicans sometimes uh, kind of demonize the uh, IRS, but. Uh, in this case, we need to support the IRS and 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 make sure they do their job. So, um, yes, there were going to be some um, some questions about exactly uh, what the score looked like on that. The the news I have just recently is that uh, those numbers are in line. So I hope that's true. Yeah, and we're even hearing from some of the more moderate members that even if the numbers don't quite match up, they're willing to let some flexibility as obviously this bill will be headed to the Senate. Changes will be made. Uh, Congressman, this is certainly not the last time you will be voting on it. But I wanted to pivot for a minute uh, to the topic of retirement. We are hearing a couple, a number of Democrats recently just announced their retirements. Uh, Patrick Leahy among them. Also, your colleague G.K. Butterfield and you yourself, Congressman, have announced. I'm wondering in what context should we be viewing these announcements? Is this a uh, writing on the wall for 2022 when Republicans have several advantages going into the midterms? I don't think so. I, I mean, with Patrick Leahy and, and myself, I happen to know we're both 81. That's probably all you need to know, right? I mean, it's not uh, not not a great mystery why we would uh, think this might be a good time to pass the baton. Uh, I, I'm have very mixed feelings about my friend G.K. Butterfield retiring. He's um, he, he's a key member, and um, there there are are questions about um, uh, the way the gerrymandering is working in North Carolina and the kind of situation it might uh, create. But um, I, I think um, the, um, the the retirements that I've seen thus far are, are basically uh, explainable by other factors. A and B. Uh, most of these districts aren't. Uh, aren't going to be affected in the way they vote by these incumbents retiring. Most of these are, at least so far, are Democratic districts. So uh, what are you and your colleagues thinking about when you do start thinking about 2022 then? If these retirements aren't writing on the wall, what are you? What are your thoughts as far as what Democrats need to do to continue to hold on to the House and protect your very slight uh, majority there? Oh, that's a that's a very good question, and you're right. Uh, it's on our minds. We um, we need to uh, first of all ensure a uh, 
a fair election, and that includes fair districts. That's um, that's a big uh, if whether those districts will be um, will be done in a in a fair way. And the um, certainly the news from North Carolina is not good. We're going to uh, be mounting a uh, very vigorous legal challenge uh, immediately, uh, where you know an evenly divided state ends up with a map designed to produce three Democrats and eleven Republicans. You know, there's something wrong with that picture, and um, they did it 10 years ago as well. We've had had redrawn districts now three times since then. You know, we keep going to court. They keep redrawing. That is not acceptable, and uh, so we need to get it right the first time, and uh, we need a vigorous Justice Department and a, a vigorous litigation strategy to challenge these districts where we need to. And then secondly, we need to... Uh, go to the public with a convincing message. And that's where uh, Build Back Better comes in. Uh, let's get past the, uh, the, you know, the top line numbers and the scoring and the uh, political um, uh, conflicts that, uh, you know, that anything like this inevitably involves. Let's get past that and to what this actually achieves. This is a, a historic achievement. It is going to make a big difference in people's lives, and we need to figure out a way to bring that home. Well, Congressman, looking ahead, uh, not quite as far as the 2022 midterms, but if this is going to get wrapped up, the Build Back Better agenda, uh, I guess the goal is this year. Uh, you are an appropriator. You also have to fund the government. The next deadline is December 3rd. There's sort of an unclear debt limit deadline that may be uh, December. There's defense authorization. There's this USICA, uh china competitiveness bill. Can you take us through just briefly what December is going to look like? And in particular, uh, on, on your end on appropriations, is there any reason to think there's going to be a spending deal or are we just going to rely on a stopgap for months and months and months? Well, you know, in talking about the Biden agenda and, and Congress's agenda, uh, you're right to include the budget for um, 2022. And that may go without saying, but I don't know, with all the focus on uh, Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill and uh, the relief bill, the earlier very important relief bill uh, post-pandemic, uh, you, you know, you almost forget that we do pass 12 appropriations bills each year. And uh, I know for the bill that I preside over, the transportation housing bill, that, that bill is a great down payment on uh, Build Back Better, and it's very important to get it uh, to get it through. We passed it last summer. Our Senate friends didn't do quite as well, so now we are confronted, as you say, with the question in December of whether we can uh, get uh, off of this continuing resolution, which has kept the government open since the new fiscal year started uh, October 1, whether we can get past uh, continuing resolutions and actually put these bills into uh, full force. That's my hope that we can do that with some mm -hmm. substantial number of those uh, of, of those bills. Sure. Uh, and Congressman, that, you definitely that, that, do that's have a question. A... You know, how much how much of this can we get done? With and and these other things, of course, can uh, can complicate the picture. And you do definitely have a busy December, Congressman. I, I did want to ask quickly, before we get to December, you'll be headed home next week to your constituents, and they're going to be facing what the American Farm Bureau has showed as an increasingly costly Thanksgiving dinner. Inflation's really hitting Americans. What's your message to your constituents? Well, my message is that uh, we, we take uh, those kinds of day-to-day uh, -day costs very seriously, and, and uh, we, we know that um, we know what's causing them. 
it, it, it has to do with the pent-up demand after the pandemic and the, uh, and the supply chain challenges that we're working on uh, uh, around the clock. And that, is, um, that, that doesn't provide much comfort, but it does provide an understanding that these are, these are challenges that we are aware of and that we are addressing. Certainly the Build Back Better bill will, um, will ease a lot of these pressures, for example, on housing costs. I worked on that directly. I know that that's true. Um, but um, you know, we we're we're going to um, we're we're going to be working very very hard to uh, relieve these pressures and to um, bring the economy back in other ways as, as well. So uh, every reason to express um, a concern about this, but not uh, to um, not to give way to you know sound bites that offer cheap shots by way of explanation, which seems to be uh, what the Republicans specialize in these days. Let's just uh, let's just understand what. Congressman, what has thank, led us to this point. Thank and, you so and how much we deal for with it and have well, a serious firm to deal with it. Hate to cut you off, but that's Congressman David Price. We'll be right back talking to Greg Giroux with BGov. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Sound On is brought to you by SCI. Today's competitive marketplace requires asset managers to become more operationally adept. See how you can transform your business with SEI's global platform at seic.com slash IMS. This is Emily Wilkins with Bloomberg Government. I am filling in today for Joe Matthew on Sound On. Joining me, as usual, is Jack Fitzpatrick. And also joining us are now are Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shianzano and Bill McGinley, a principal at the Vogel Group and a former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Thank you both so much for, for joining us today. Uh, we just heard from Congressman Price, Democrat from North Carolina. And Jeannie, I just wanted to, to hone in on what I think is the biggest news right now. It sounds like there is going to be a vote either tonight or tomorrow on President Biden's signature policy agenda, that social welfare and tax package. But Jeannie, how big is this step really, given that the bill after it, it the House is done with it still has to go to the Senate? Emily, you, Jack, and Congressman Price have me so optimistic, I can't believe it. I, I am sitting here, is this actually going to happen? Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. And that's how I felt listening to you all. So I hope it's not just wishful thinking. It looks like we do get this, the, the, the full readout from the CBO, hopefully by 5 p.m. And then there very well could be a vote. I think Thanksgiving has, you know, the prospect of Thanksgiving has got people really excited to get out of D.C. And, you know, I do think... 
you're right, it's going to go to the Senate. There's going to be changes. The House will have another go at it. But I don't think you could underestimate what an important step forward this is. And the fact that at least as of this moment, and I hope I don't eat these words, we're not seeing a good deal of infighting between the moderates and the progressives. Everybody seems, or most people seem to be on the same page to move this thing forward and get it out to the Senate, hopefully today or tomorrow. Yeah, Jean, you're definitely right to to peg it to that Thanksgiving break. It seems like the only, the, like, Congress's favorite thing is not being in Congress, getting getting those recess breaks. Um, I also we've got these CBO numbers that are coming out, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office showing how much the bill spends, uh, showing how much it will raise. Uh, bill, what are you looking for when you look at these reports and, and how important are they really to to the overall bill? Look, I think they're quite important, but the people that I'm going to be looking at the most are going to be Senators Manchin and Cinema. They've been the two that have really kind of held up the uh, president's agenda. Uh, Senator Manchin recently it came out and said that the Build Back Better bill, uh, the social spending and tax bill, um, contained a lot of shell games in terms of the costs and, and whether it was going to have an impact on the deficit. Um, you know, in recent days, there's been quite a bit of talk about the tax impact on the middle class. And, you know, the fact that the House of Representatives might schedule the vote tonight so that they can get out of town tells you that um, they're probably still counting the votes now that the CBO numbers have been out. And I think, you know, whether they schedule the vote tonight or tomorrow is going to tell you what sort of difficulties they have. Remember, the House Democrats only have a three-vote margin, so they really don't have anything to give. And unlike the BIF uh, legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, um, there, there's going to be no vote, Republican votes to help the Democrats get this across the finish line. So this really is a Democratic bill, and they're going to have to make sure that all factions are satisfied with it. Well, I'm curious, Jeannie, what you uh, make, a, you know, following up on the point Bill made about some of the sorty, sort of gimmickiness of how this bill is structured, you know, it was supposed to be paid for originally. Now there seems to be skepticism that it itself can even be paid for. But that's even considering that major programs like the child tax credit is only extended for a year. And there's the plan to re-extend this, which would obviously add cost. Uh, are, are we just assuming at this point that none of the Democrats, even the moderates, totally care if this is paid for, Jeannie, or is that an issue at all? I think it still remains an issue. They really wanted the CBO estimates to generally match up with what the White House had projected, and there's that's not going to be completely the, the reality. Right. But I think, you know, even beyond that, you know, the big sticking point, I live in New York, and hearing many of our Congress people on the Democratic side, is the SALT deduction. That it remains, I think, a huge sticking point. And listening to what Bernie Sanders, and I think Bill is right, you've got to have like this 24-7 camera on Joe Manchin. I also think Kristen Sinema, but also Bernie Sanders as it pertains to the SALT, because that's something that could cost the the some of the moderate support in the House. And as Bill said, they can't afford to lose that much. So there are still real sticking points here, but hopefully they're able to iron those out and move it back to the House for a vote. Yeah. And Pelosi said today that she is she's ready for a fight when it comes to that salt tax. She's willing to defend it, probably because she can count votes in her caucus and she knows that they don't have them if they don't do something with that cap. Uh, Bill, I'm wondering, kind of going forward here, the timing element of this. Obviously, the House took a while with this bill. Now they're heading to the Senate. Uh, when does this need to be done by? 
Well, they're, I think they're going to try and do it before they have to do the government spending, but I'm not quite sure they're going to have the time to do that with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. I mean, basically what we're seeing is the buildup to a pretty dramatic December in Washington, D.C. in terms of legislation. You know, everything from the government funding to the debt limit to the NDAA, um, you know, all of the supply chain issues. But this Build Back Better legislation really seems to suck a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Um, in terms of both the House and the Senate. And so we're going to see what happens here. Oh, and we've got um, I really think a lot. it's going to slow down in the Senate. And it's got a, a lot more coming that Congress has to deal with as well. We're going to come back to talk with Jeannie and Bill a little later. Up next, Bloomberg government's Greg Giroux is going to join us to break down that ever-crucial redistricting process. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg Radio. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here subbing in with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government in for Joe today. Coming up, we're going to talk to Greg Giroux, who covers Congress and elections for Bloomberg Government, about the 2022 midterm landscape. We'll also keep talking to Jeannie Shianzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Bill McGinley of the Vogel Group. And let's bring in Greg Giroux, who's on the line. He covers elections in Congress for Bloomberg Government. He is also really, really good at trivia. That's just a, a fun fact about him. Greg, and trivia on trivia. Yes, it's it's a trivial fact. Uh, Greg, can you walk us through, especially because we were talking to Congressman Price about his retirement, about the uh, retirement news from his colleague from North Carolina, G.K. Butterfield. Walk us through North Carolina. I want to hear about the redistricting landscape there. Uh, that's that's an area where Republicans seem to be able to make a, a really big push. What's going on in North Carolina with redistricting? Yeah, well, North Carolina is one of the biggest prizes for Republicans in redistricting. They control more state legislatures and governorships than Democrats, and that's put Republicans in advantage to um, try and take over control of the House of Representatives in the 2022 election. In North Carolina, uh, Republicans, Republicans control the legislature, and uh, North Carolina gained one seat to go from 13 to 14 districts. And the map that Republicans are drawing hopes to give them you know, maybe 10 of those 14 seats in the delegation. They did redraw Congressman G.K. Butterfield's district in northeastern North Carolina to be slightly less Democratic-leaning. Um, it would still have voted for Joe Biden narrowly in the 2020 election, but uh, it's in a midterm election year with Joe Biden's numbers where they are, that seat is vulnerable uh, for Democrats and Republicans. will have a shot at flipping it. So, uh, North Carolina, a big prize for uh, Republicans in redistricting, along with other mega states like Texas and Florida. And Republicans are trying to parlay those advantages in redistricting into winning control of the House of Representatives in a year, and they only need a five seat net gain to do it. Yeah, Greg, let's go broad here for a minute, because I know that there are a number of states that are still working on what their new congressional maps are going to look like, but more than a dozen have finished at this point. What are just some early takeaways from you with what these maps are telling us? Yeah, we've got about a third of the states done. 44 states have to redraw lines. Six states have one district and therefore don't need to redraw lines. 
but of the 15 states that have completed congressional redistricting, and I just want to point out that doesn't preclude uh, litigation in states that uh, could block maps, but 15 states that have finished, uh, some trends we're seeing are Republicans in control of redistricting are trying to solidify their members from marginal districts and try and put them off the table, keep them away from uh, Democratic, the possibility of Democratic victory in 2022 and the rest of the decade in states like Arkansas, French Hill from the Little Rock area had a close race last couple of elections, probably won't in 2022. Victoria Sparts, a first-term member from Metro Indianapolis, Indiana, won a close race in 2020, probably won't have one in 2022. A number of incumbents in Texas, a lot of Texas suburban districts became very competitive during the decade after they initially thought they'd be strongly Republican. Republicans shored up their members there, like Beth Van Dyne. Uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Burgess Owens in Utah. Uh, So, yeah, the list goes on. So we're seeing Republicans trying to solidify their members from uh, marginal seats and also try and target some Democratic incumbents for defeat uh, in some other states like Lucy McBath in Georgia and Chris Pappas in in, in New Hampshire. Yeah, I know uh, in Georgia, Lucy McBath and and Carolyn Bordeaux could potentially face a a really tough uh, re-election there if they both decide to run. Uh, But Greg, this kind of sounds like redistricting is absolutely going in Republicans' favor. I mean, is there any sense here that Democrats are also going to be able to solidify a couple seats? I'm looking at the map. I see that New York and California aren't done yet. Right. California is kind of a wild card. There you have a commission redrawing lines there. California is going from 53 to 52 districts, so that's that's quite a lot. That's about one out of every eight members of Congress. But a big wild card, so you just don't really know what that commission is going to do, although they have released some preliminary maps to kind of give us an inkling of what may go on there. Democrats do have some targets of their own. Uh, Illinois, they have passed a congressional map there that they're trying to give uh, themselves, uh, you know, all but maybe three of the districts in Illinois Um, They try to shore up some of their vulnerable members. Uh, New York has a commission that's only advisory, and the Democratic majority legislature there could uh, and is expected to just implement its own map instead of what the commission does. So Democrats have their own targets, but Republicans are in control of many more districts uh, to redraw than Democrats because they control more state legislatures and governorships, which in most states is what you want to have when you're in charge of redrawing lines. So, Greg, you mentioned the lawsuits that these uh, that that gerrymandering or anything that can be construed as gerrymandering can attract. Uh, but can you lay out for us? You know, I, I remember over the last ten years there were lawsuits that went on for roughly half the decade. So it seems that if one of these states or a bunch of these states draw very very favorable lines for one party, uh, I, I mean, to what extent can lawsuits undo that? Uh, they really can, and you're right. It seems like litigation can stretch on not just for one election, but over several elections. And in some states, we've seen multiple uh, congressional maps held throughout a decade. You know, states like North Carolina. Um, we saw some lawsuits litigation in you know, North Carolina and Florida and Pennsylvania that favored Democrats and uh, got more favorable maps uh, for Democrats in the 2018 uh, election. So we'll see a lot of lawsuits filed. Um, one change is that um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that you could not bring political gerrymandering cases to federal courts. But so I think what you will see are more political gerrymandering lawsuits brought in state courts. Um, So you may see that. And of course, you still have um, 
racial and ethnic gerrymandering claims that, that are going to be uh, uh, there are going to be a lot of those in the courts as well because redrawing lines and how they affect um, the voting power of people of color has always right. been a very uh, it's always been a major issue and one that's been much litigated. So it, re- redistricting aside, Greg, real quick, how, to what extent are, is the House and the Senate leaning Republicans' way in 2022? It seems very significant, right? Yes, Republicans are strongly favored to win control of the House. They just need a, fi- a net gain of five seats to win control. It, we're going into a midterm election on the opposition party, the party opposite the White House in a midterm election. The average gain since World War II is a net gain of more than 25 seats. The Senate is right. 50-50. Republicans have 20 seats to defend compared to just 14 for Democrats. But uh, it's not... Uh, it's not certain that uh, Democrats can hold the Senate either. It's going to be right. very close. Greg Giroux, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up next, we're going to keep talking to Jeannie Shianzano and Bill McGinley with Emily Wilkins. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The White House had some breaking news today, finally announcing the nominees for the turkey pardon later this week. I'm sorry for all of you Fed chair watchers. We still do not have an update on that. We do know the names of the turkeys, though, that are going to be pardoned, peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but we are we are staying on top of the Fed chair stuff. Um, I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick filling in for Joe Matthew tonight. Uh, and we had another one of our colleagues at Bloomberg, Josh Wingrove. He attempted to get some clarity today on the timing of that Fed chair decision from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. It still remains, as Chris said yesterday, uh, that uh, he intends to make a decision in advance of Thanksgiving. And hopefully all of you financial reporters can rest easily with your turkey and mashed potatoes or whatever you like to eat, uh, that you don't have to be chasing it by then. Is that an announcement that we can expect to be for the other open positions, or is it just the chair that he's going to be I don't have an update beyond that, but I, I think you can certainly expect the, the nominee for the, the that he will make a decision and we'll have more to say before Thanksgiving on the chair. All right. Well, there it is. Saki has told it. Our Thanksgiving turkey, our mashed potatoes are safe this year. Uh, we are joined now by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shianzano and Bill McGinley, a principal at the Vogel Group, former deputy counsel at the National Republican Committee. Uh, Bill, why is it taking so long here for President Biden to come to a decision on who he wants to nominate for Fed chair? It feels like this decision's been dragging out for weeks. We know they already met at the White House. Why Why is it taking so long? 
Well, I think trying to decide who's going to be chair of the Federal Reserve Board is one of the most consequential picks a president can make uh, because it really does have an impact on a president's term in terms of the economy and the financial position of the markets. And so I think that a lot of this is happening because there's also some cross currents within the Democratic caucus. Some of the more progressive members may be polling for somebody other than the current chair, uh, Jerome Powell, and may be looking for uh, Ms. Brainer to basically be get the nod for that. She's viewed um, as somebody who may be a little bit more political and more friendly to the Biden White House in terms of whether or not to raise interest rates. And so also the progressives are going to be, uh, I think, really behind her and not uh, Jerome Powell, who may be uh, more of a pick that the markets may, may appreciate. I don't think there's a lot of difference between the two, but on balance, if the White House is trying to weigh the equities and keep the the, the moderates in place, um, there may be uh, still some vetting going on to try and feel out um, which pick may uh, give them the better shot of getting this through pretty quickly. Well, if they are then relying on Republican votes to back up uh, it, Jerome Powell, if he is indeed re-nominated uh, and they need to go to Republicans because of the progressives who say they don't want him to, to stay in place, uh, what kind of challenges does that raise, Jeannie? And in particular, I'm thinking of, I, I asked Senator Richard Shelby, who's on the Banking Committee, about this, and he brought up the inflation. Uh, I mean, does, does Jerome Powell take the blame for inflation and then have trouble uh, getting Republican support? Or, or, or do you think he actually just gets a significant amount of Republican support in addition to many Democrats? Well, I think inflation, you're exactly right, is a critical issue here. And, and, and I actually uh, view it slightly differently, which is that these bad inflation numbers for Joe Biden have made him uh, a little bit more potentially likely to go with Powell than with Brainerd. Um, I agree with Bill. I don't think there's a, a huge amount of difference between them. They're both incredibly uh, respected. They have great experience. Um, they're both qualified. You know, Brainerd is an economist. Powell is a lawyer. There's some differences there. But I do think that the inflation issue is top of mind because it's going to impact the midterm election. And Joe Biden knows that. And I think for that reason, he may, as the betting markets tell us, be slightly more likely to go with Powell in this instance. But we should also note that, you know, he is facing pushback from progressives in particular on this. And one key issue is the issue of diversity. Um, they want to see much more diversity on the Fed. And so he has those other picks in which he could do that. But that's got to be weighing on his mind as well. Absolutely. Another big piece of news uh, that happened today is that President Biden met with his counterparts, uh, presidents of Canada, as well as Mexico. And one very interesting piece of news that came out of that is that Biden said he was considering a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Bill, we just saw Biden and she sit down earlier this week and have this three-hour virtual summit. What what does it mean that now he's considering a boycott? I think it means that we can view the, the, the uh, actions of China have become far more aggressive with respect to Taiwan, um, that they've actually taken a lot of um, steps uh, to kind of show up their uh, nationalist uh, ambitions. Um, and I think that it tells you that uh, the Biden administration is actually beginning to view 
China as a challenge uh, that they need to, to try and confront in some ways uh, diplomatically. And a boycott of the Olympics is a very public statement um, that would embarrass China, but also uh, be a kind of a peaceful way of pushing back on some of their aggressive uh, uh, moves that they've taken lately. Um, I, I, I find it very interesting that this is coming out after uh, the virtual summit, uh, which tells you that it, it really wasn't kind of as productive as maybe the White House hoped. Uh, I think they're going to try and keep the lines of communication open, but it tells you that this is going to be a continuing challenge for the Biden administration as they go forward. Uh, the Olympics are coming up in February, um, and so they're going to have to make a decision pretty soon. Jeannie, I want to follow up with you on the the context around this news on a potential Olympic boycott. It, it does seem like we're kind of going back and forth uh, between pretty good news and, and not so good news. We saw the cooperative statement on a strategic petroleum reserve uh, release from China following the virtual meeting between President Biden and President Xi. But we also saw a, a statement, sort of a flub by President Biden using the word independent to describe Taiwan, which he kind of had to walk back. Uh, then you, you see a, a harsher stance potentially on the Olympics. How do you make sense of this? And is there sort of a coherent strategy there? Or I mean, it seems like we're going very back and forth on uh, China news. We are. And, and, you know, I think it reflects what is the reality of our relationship now. And I think at least for the foreseeable future with China is it's not going to be all black or white. We need China. We need to work with China on certain things. For example, climate, with which John Kerry has been able to move forward. Um, we, we certainly need to work with them in the economic and the trade realm. But we also have grave differences with them. And you mentioned the Taiwan issue, the flub, the president made the other day. We certainly are at odds there. We are at odds in human rights. So I think it's reflective of where our relationship is. And, you know, it's one of the rare areas where there is bipartisan agreement in this country, which is the danger and the challenge that China, you know, really uh, presents to the United States. And on this issue of the Olympic boycott, you see Republican lawmakers really pushing for a boycott. Tom Cotton, Mitt Romney and others. And you see Nancy Pelosi agree with it, I think the Biden administration is smart to consider a diplomatic boycott versus a, you know, 1980 full boycott, which I think would be a big mistake. But one question I still have, which the State Department said they're not doing in April, but we may see in the near future, is whether they're going to push allies for a joint boycott, because that, I think, would also send a much broader message, or at least a, a joint diplomatic boycott, a much broader message to China. We also are now just getting news that the Congressional Budget Office has released that long-awaited score of the entire bill. Uh, we're having some reporters crunch the numbers. It looks like it would increase the deficit by $367 billion. I mean, this is not what lawmakers wanted. They wanted to say it was revenue neutral, but this also isn't the end of the road for the bill. I mean, Jack, I, I know we're just starting to get details on this, but but what are your initial thoughts? Yes. Yeah, so uh, credit to our colleague Eric Wasson at Bloomberg News, who particularly covers this fiscal kind of issue. Um, deficit increase of $360 billion. That obviously it doesn't sound great for the 
Democratic Party that went around saying this is going to be paid for, especially considering that a number of these provisions expire and they would want to re-up them, uh, thereby increasing the costs uh, in the future. So, it, you know, we're, we're going to delve into the details and what really matters is how moderate Democrats perceive this. Uh, but it's it's not ideal news to point to that $360 billion figure for Democrats. Although I, I'm now also seeing Eric reporting that this doesn't count the funding that could come um, revenue from provisions strengthening the IRS, which granted are, are controversial and, and again, just worth noting that on things like that, on SALT, on paid family leave, all of this could change in the U.S. Senate. So this number, it's not a final number here for how much the, that's going to add. Plus changes uh, coming up uh, in the Senate, of course. There's going to have to be a whole other House vote coming up after the Senate makes changes, which is essentially inevitable. So yeah, we're not near the the finish line on this bill, even though this initial uh, official score from CBO is, uh, I, I would say, kind of inconvenient for Democrats. Exactly. And we're going to see at least one more vote tonight in the House. Not yet. Nothing announced yet for that social welfare and tax bill. But we're going to have to leave it there. Gina Shion, Zeno, uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Bill McGinley over at the Vogel group. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for co-hosting with me. We're filling in today for Joe Matthew. Uh, We'll be back, or Jack will be back tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.